The episode that you are about to hear is the third episode of a four-part miniseries on Chris Bale's Breaking the Social Media Prism. Like I did in the prior episode, I am going to recap some critical information here at the front, but in order to get the most mileage out of this episode, you'll want to listen to the previous two episodes beforehand. Also, while I didn't tag this episode as explicit in the podcast feed, there are going to be a couple of sections in this episode where some disturbing material will be discussed, specifically involving online harassment and death threats. I'll give warnings before those sections so that you can skip ahead if you're listening with the kids or you just need to avoid those sections yourself. With all that said, I hope you enjoy Internet Trolls and the Quest for the inner ring. So far in our series covering Chris Bale's Breaking the Social Media Prism, we have focused on establishing some foundational truths. In the first episode, Stepping on the Glass of Broken Echo Chambers, we covered chapters 1 through 3 of the book and Bale's research showing that social media echo chambers are not the problem when it comes to political polarization and tribalism. In fact, we actually make the problem worse when we focus our energy on breaking people out of their echo chambers. And it usually results in a person doubling down on both their pre-existing beliefs and the intensity of those beliefs. Based on Bale's research, it is not information that drives our beliefs, but our identities. And when we step outside our echo chambers to, quote, get the other side, we perceive contrasting perspectives, arguments, and ideas not as an attack on what we believe, but an attack on who we are as individuals. In the second episode, Distorted Beyond the Funhouse Mirror, we covered chapter 4 of the book and introduced Bale's concept of the social media prism. When it comes to our identities, how we perceive ourselves and others, the social media prism does two things to us. It distorts our identities and it bends our identities. The first effect is simple enough. Social media gives us a very incomplete and skewered picture of reality, including our understanding of ourselves relative to the rest of society and culture. But it's the second effect, where social media ceases being just a funhouse mirror, and it actually does something to us. Bale contends that social media not only distorts our identities, but it bends our behavior to match the distorted identities we see online. If part of our identity is to find belonging and acceptance to a particular group, tribe, or ideology, we will change our behavior to match the behavior we see from those that we respect and admire online, even if that behavior doesn't reflect the attitude or desires of a group as a whole. We often want to use social media as a mirror that we can use to see ourselves relative to the rest of society. But not only does that mirror give us a heavily distorted image of ourselves and our world, it changes our behavior in ways that stay with us, even after we've stopped looking in the mirror or have gotten off social media. In this episode, and in the episode to follow, we are going to start getting more practical and concrete on both how these problems are affecting us and whether or not we can do anything about them. I recognize that the last two episodes have been heavy on problem and little on solution. And unfortunately for this episode, that trend is going to continue. But in the next episode, we're going to examine Bale's solutions to the problem and give some critique and evaluations. And I'm also going to provide some solutions of my own. This episode is going to be very straightforward. We are going to tackle the two biggest effects of the social media prism on our society, as detailed in chapter 5 and 6 of the book. Those two biggest effects are how the social media prism drives extremism, covered in chapter 5, and how the social media prism mutes moderates, 
which is covered in chapter 6. For chapter 5, Bale's goal is very straightforward. Quote, I explain how the social media prism distorts how extremists see themselves and others, which creates a self-fulfilling prophecy that pushes people further apart. End quote. Bale notes that while there is no shortage of opinions about extremists on social media, there's been very little academic study on them for a very obvious reason. Political extremists, or trolls, usually don't want to be studied, and like they behave on social media, they'll often troll the researchers by leaving out or hiding key details about their lives. Bale illustrates this at the start of the chapter with a story of a man named Jamie, a medical assistant at a hospital in Alabama. Jamie, in his interview with Bale, claims that he only uses Twitter as an information source for sports and music, and that he didn't really care about whether or not other people online knew his opinion on stuff. And yet, a cursory survey of Jamie's social media activity revealed that he was a very extreme liberal troll, often tweeting fly-by insults at conservatives just in his ordinary and everyday use of the app. Jamie's self-description of himself admitted the fact that Jamie is a troll, and he knows it. When he took the political beliefs survey at the start of Bale's study, he even trolled the survey and said he was a very strong Republican. Jamie would later admit a very critical truth. As a liberal with mostly conservative friends living in a very conservative part of the country, Jamie was very lonely. Loneliness is a theme that appears in the lives of many of the extremists that Bale interviewed, even for ones on the opposite end of the political spectrum. Bale's next illustration is of a conservative troll named Ed, who, unlike Jamie, admits he's a troll and is proud of it. He enjoyed Trump's social media antics and behavior and was willing to be bluntly and directly honest with Bale and his research team about his behavior online and the fact that he enjoys being a troll on Twitter. Now, take whatever opinion you may have about Ed and freeze that in time for a second while I fill you in on Ed's backstory. As Bale says, Ed is a widower in his 60s. He spent most of the 80s working in the financial sector and was able to provide a comfortable life for him and his wife. But as changes in the financial sector pushed him out of a job, Ed had to tap early into his retirement in order to make ends meet. Not only that, his wife was dying, and her medical care in the final stages of her life depleted even more of his savings. Now, Ed lives in a motel in Nebraska, living on food stamps because he's overqualified for the handful of jobs in the small town that he lives in. He doesn't have any family or friends nearby, and he can't afford to move back to the town that he spent most of his life in, in Colorado. Ed has so little that he claims he can't even afford a red Make America Great Again hat. What Ed does have and what he takes great pride in is his online status and significance as a troll. Because in the real world, he has nothing. Bale argues that when you lack real-world status and significance, the ability to influence others is immensely valuable to someone who doesn't have much control over what's going on in their lives. If you're someone like Ed, whose life savings from a promising career have all been washed down the drain just trying to survive and taking care of your now-deceased wife, and you live in a motel surviving solely on food stamps, being able to influence people online and make a difference online fills the vacuum of powerlessness in your own real-world context and circumstances. As Bale says, Besides earning status from people on their own side, many of the extremists we interviewed simply delighted in getting other people worked up. Our ability to influence others, however artificially or temporarily, is valuable to people who feel that they have very little control over their own lives. A team of political scientists in the United States and Denmark 
conducted a series of studies in both countries to determine who spreads political rumors or fake news online. What they found was somewhat surprising. The people who spread such falsehoods were not simply motivated to see their own side win. Rather, the researchers found that they have a need for chaos, a desire to see the entire system suffer. This need, the scholars speculated, emerges from the experience of marginalization itself, something I saw very clearly in the case of Ed, Jamie, and most of the other political extremists we interviewed. And for Ed specifically, he admits that his extreme social media behavior is not just a coping mechanism, but fills the vacuum of significance that he is missing in his life. Ed told us he engages in extreme behavior on social media because it is cathartic and helps him cope with social isolation. But it was also clear from speaking with him that such behavior gives him a powerful sense of status. During our interview, he repeatedly mentioned that he had a couple thousand followers, and he was particularly proud to count several prominent conservative leaders among them. When I analyzed Ed's social media account several months later, however, I discovered that he only had about 200 followers. What is more, the high-profile conservatives he thought were following him were actually people with copycat accounts. For Ed and many of the other political extremists we interviewed, social media enables a kind of micro-celebrity, even if his influence was exaggerated, or even if many of his followers did not seem like real people who were genuinely interested in his views. While I am not trying to suggest that the behavior of trolls is ever justified or acceptable, I would hope that maybe somewhere in our hearts, exhausted and worn thin as we are from the state of our world, a small kindling of compassion light, and that we might consider that the trolls that we see online, at least the ones that are not public speakers, authors, grifters, or media personalities, are trolls online because they're looking for something to fill a deep hole of grief in their hearts. But not only are most trolls likely looking for belonging and acceptance and significance in their lives and in their behavior, they're very likely to find it in the worst possible place, among other trolls who are looking for the same thing. One of the more interesting observations from Bale's study is how political extremists, whether online or offline, come to form deep communities with other extremists, and in an online context, how those clusters of extremists work together in trolling people. They'll share lists of people to follow, and they'll work together in targeting individuals to troll. Bale saw some of the people he was working with individually make connections with other trolls online and team up to troll the bots that Bale was using in this study. But perhaps the most fascinating aspect is this. Nearly every political extremist Bale interviewed admitted, to some degree, that they know their trolling doesn't change anyone's mind on an issue. One conservative troll he interviewed even went so far as to say, quote, I have to respond to something like that, referring to an extreme liberal reaction on a political situation, because it's ridiculous. Not that it's going to matter, because the people who believe it's our fault are going to believe it's our fault, no matter what the evidence is. End quote. Remember, one of Bale's biggest claims is that the biggest driving force behind extremism and polarization is not a quest of information, but identity. And one thing that every identity shares in common is a desire to be in relationship with others who share our identity. As Bale says, Though it may seem that social media extremists are most concerned with taking down the other side through superior argumentation, ideally laced with wry humor or sarcasm, my research suggests that these attacks also serve a ritual function that pushes extremists closer together. And if you think about it for a bit, this makes a lot of sense. If you have little going for you in the real world, if your life lacks meaning, status, and significance, 
it's no surprise that you would befriend those who also seek the same thing as you because they're in a similar state as you. If online status and significance become the only meaningful form of status and significance you have in your life, receiving status and significance from others you can relate to and identify with becomes more than just an extra form of social currency, it becomes the only lens through which you can understand yourself. Extremists who are driven towards extremism due to marginalization and suffering in their real-world lives and whose extremist connections and relationships are the most valuable relationships they have are deeply concerned about suffering any loss to their online status because it's the only status they have that gives them meaning. Like the story with Ed just a bit ago, he believed that he had several thousand followers on Twitter, which included some big-name conservative leaders. But in actuality, he only had a couple hundred followers, including copycat accounts of those big-name conservative leaders. In actuality, Ed had nothing in the real world and was a nobody online. But he didn't see it that way. So imagine what would happen if a troll should lose a follower, or a group of followers, or doesn't receive the desired attention and recognition from those who aren't as extreme as them. If trolls are violent and hostile towards those who are opposite of them politically, they're often much worse towards those who unfollow them, or who won't go as far as they do. And this makes their relationships with other trolls all the more priceless. As Bale says, The symbolic meaning of the bonds that extremists make with each other become even more apparent to me when I learned how closely extremists monitor their followers. Though social media sites do not alert users when people stop following them, several of the extremists we interviewed used third-party apps to identify such individuals. People who unfollowed the extremists we studied, particularly several of the conservative extremists, were often subject to even more aggressive attacks. For me, this type of retribution further underscores how deeply trolls value the status and influence they achieve online, and how much it upsets them when people on their own side sever ties with them. If this is starting to sound like a cult or cultish behavior, that's because it bears several significant features of being a cult. We normally don't think of online trolls as belonging to any particular group, much less one with the features of cults. But according to Bale, that's exactly what's going on here. Quick note before this quote, he refers to people and stories that I've not mentioned here. The more I delved into communities of political extremists on social media, the more they seemed to have cult-like dynamics. As the famed sociologist Max Weber noted more than a hundred years ago, Most extreme religious groups exist in constant tension with established mainstream churches. Proving one's membership in a cult often becomes a sort of ritual in which members reward each other for taking increasingly extreme positions to prove their loyalty to the cause. For Sandy, the former Obama voter who became an ardent Trump supporter, this required frequent rehearsal of her conservative bona fides. For Ellen, this often takes the form of attacking other Democrats for policies that, in her view, are scarcely different from those of her true enemy, Republicans. For still others, it means attacking extremists who challenge their loyalty to their side more forcefully than anyone else. In each of these cases, my research indicates that political extremists are pushed and pulled toward increasingly radical positions by the likes, new follows, and other types of engagement they receive for doing so, or because they fear retribution for showing any sympathy towards the mainstream. These types of behavior mirror the famous finding of social psychologist Leon Festinger about a doomsday cult from the 1950s. The further people become committed to radical views, the more difficult these commitments become to undo and the more people come to rely on the status and support system that cults create. I'm going to repeat that last clause because I don't want you to miss this. The further people become committed to radical views the more difficult those commitments become to undo and the more people come to rely 
on the status and support system that cults create. I sincerely hope this flips a switch or turns on a light bulb in the way you view political extremists or trolls, because to connect several dots here, if the primary driving force of our lives is not the information we believe, but the identity we desire to have and our desire to belong to others who are like us, it means that there is a social and relational dimension to extremism that cannot be undone unless there is a viable social and support system to transition extremists into. For cults who practice shunning former members who leave the cult, such as Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, oftentimes the biggest factor for whether or not someone truly walks away is whether or not they have a place waiting for them to walk towards. If changing these beliefs does not simply cost me intellectually, but is also going to cost me physically and socially and relationally, then the cost of exit isn't just a matter of paying an intellectual price, but a price that comprises everything I am. This doesn't mean that people aren't willing to pay that price. When it comes to the Christian cults specifically that I mentioned, there are countless testimonies of incredibly courageous and brave men and women who have left everything behind to follow Christ no matter what the cost was. But it does make that price significantly higher than what most people are going to be willing to pay. But if that cost can be offset somewhere else, if I have a strong and legitimate community of friends and people who treat me like flesh and blood family outside the support system of the cult that I want to leave, that lessens the pain of leaving that support system behind and choosing this new social and relational support system to belong to. But if I don't have that alternate system, if I'm alone and I have no one else to meaningfully turn to for the belonging and the acceptance that I am designed to desire and to seek out, why should I leave the system that gives me those things? As Bale says, One of the key functions of the social media prism is that it reflects the social landscape back to us. But in so doing, the prism inevitably distorts what we see, and for many people, it creates a delusional form of self-worth. The type of uncivil behavior I described in this chapter results from this process taken to its extreme. Many people with strong partisan views do not participate in such destructive behavior. But the people who do often act this way because they feel marginalized, lonely, or disempowered in their offline lives. Social media offers such social outcasts another path. Even if the fame extremists generate has little significance beyond small groups of other outcasts, the research my colleagues and I conducted suggests that social media gives extremists a sense of purpose, community, and, most importantly, self-worth. Now, I want to be abundantly clear and give the strongest possible condemnations that I can give here. Nothing of what I have said in any way, shape, or form is meant to excuse or justify the behavior of trolls online. I also want to stress that this is not a one-size-fits-all reality for every single troll that you'll ever meet. There are plenty of trolls who are not lonely or suffering in the real world. And there are some trolls whose trolling is seen as a boon or an asset to their professional life and image. I am not trying to paint a view of trolls as being these poor, misguided souls who are just simply misunderstood. But I am trying to say is that for a good number of trolls, their online behavior is an extension of their real-world brokenness. And that this behavior isn't something that can be argued or fact-checked out of them if it truly does arise from pain and suffering that is invisible to us. When it comes to the trolls that we see online, there is often very little to nothing that we can do to meaningfully address or fix that real-world pain and suffering. What we can do is not feed 
that online status and significance that trolls crave from getting people riled up. As counterintuitive as it seems, blocking and muting trolls truly is the most helpful thing that we can do if it's someone that we do not know and cannot help in real life. If trolls are to have any hope of moving on from this identity towards a healthier one, regardless if that's an option on the table at the moment or not. Their identity as a troll will need to be weakened. And the only way to weaken the strength of that identity is to do your part to not contribute oxygen to that burning flame. Now, as terrible and depressing as this whole topic is, it's actually about to get worse. The amplification and empowerment of extremists is one of two major effects the social media prism has on our society. Bale argues, and I agree with him, that the second of these two effects is actually the worst of the two, and that's the muting of moderates. If our culture uses social media as a tool to reflect the political and cultural landscape back to us, and if that reflection gives us a heavily distorted image in return, that distortion is going to manifest itself in two ways. It's going to make one particular aspect of society seem outsized and aggrandized into something much bigger and much more menacing than it actually is. But in order to do that, it needs to minimize or obscure something else in order to make that smaller feature now seem significantly larger. In our case, social media reflects to us a landscape where the vast majority of people have lost their minds and common ground is increasingly impossible with one another. But, as a little piece of good news, that distorted image that we see does not reflect the way American society actually is. Political extremists represent a very small percentage of the American population. Political moderates are not any less a political voting bloc than they've been at any point in recent history. And yet the landscape reflected to us through social media would have us believe that the opposite is true. And this belief is far from benign. Like many other lies we believe about ourselves and others, these misconceptions and distortions change the way we think, feel, and behave. And those lies scale very well to society as a whole. I had mentioned at the beginning of the episode that there would likely be some sections where you might want to skip ahead for yourself and for anyone listening. And for the next 2 minutes and 15 seconds, we will be covering some stories that include online harassment and death threats. So feel free to skip ahead if you need to. When I was reading Breaking the Social Media Prison for the first time, chapter 6 was the first chapter in the book where I felt, at a personal level, everything that Bale was researching and arguing for. As someone who considers themselves a political moderate, one who leans right of center if all of my various stances were aggregated into one general location, I related to many of the individuals and stories that Bale tells in this chapter about how social media makes me, as a moderate, often feel incredibly lonely and isolated on social media. Even though, statistically speaking, I belong to the largest political voting bloc in America. The first story that Bale tells, the story of a woman named Sarah, hit home to me for multiple reasons. Bale spends a good amount of time detailing how Sarah's political beliefs as a moderate Republican are complex and nuanced on many different topics, and how many of Sarah's life and family experiences form and shape her various stances on certain topics. And yet, Sarah has largely given up on trying to have discussions about what she believes politically on social media because anytime she does, she is met with immense hostility. One time, in a semi-viral tweet about how her husband owns a gun for visiting a shooting range, but she's not opposed to firearm regulations at all, someone replied that they were contacting CPS because Sarah admitted to having guns in the house where her two children live. Someone else blatantly wished one of her daughters found that gun and shot Sarah with it. While responding to a liberal troll who listed that they were a breast cancer survivor in their bio, 
Sarah compassionately tried to find some common ground with this person who was harassing her. Sarah herself was also a breast cancer survivor. The troll simply replied, quote, I hope you die. This experience of being unable to dialogue about her political beliefs online doesn't just apply to strangers on the internet. Sarah is also distressed by her inability to talk with her more liberal friends and family members on social media as well. And she eventually decided that for the sake of being able to love her liberal friends and family and enjoy the time that she spends with them in person, that she needed to mute or block those friends and family, even if it meant also missing out on life updates and family photos, along with their political rants. If one looked at her social media presence now, it would look as though Sarah doesn't care very much about politics. But nothing could be further from the truth. Sarah cares very deeply about her political convictions. She just doesn't believe, as the vast majority of moderates do, that it's neither profitable nor safe to try to add her moderate voice to a discussion dominated by polarized extremes. And as Bale argues, the cost of Sarah's absence and the absence of countless other people like her is profound. It may genuinely surprise you to learn that, contrary to appearances on social media, that the American public is not any more polarized than it has been in recent decades. The American National Election Study and several other large studies show that the number of people who identify as extremely liberal or extremely conservative is a very small percentage of the population, and that the number of people who identify as a moderate be it left of center, right of center, or firmly in the center, remains the dominant majority by far. The same firms who conduct these studies also regularly report that most Republicans and Democrats have views that are often out of step with the party line, such as the majority of self-professed Republicans having neutral to positive views on increasing immigration, and a majority of self-professed Democrats having positive views on the police and rural life. So if the vast majority of the American public are moderates in some way, and if the average Republican or Democrat holds political views that may be out of step with the party stereotype, where are all of these people at? Based on social media, this almost seems too good to be true. If these people exist, why don't we see them more often? This is where the distorting and bending effects of the social media prism come into play. Like we talked about in the last episode, social media not only distorts our identities, but it bends our behaviors to conform to those distorted identities. If I identify as a moderate, and I look to social media to see where all my fellow moderates are at, and see nothing but extremists and trolls, I am going to conclude that there are not very many people like me. And on the handful of instances where I see someone try to express a nuanced view on a topic and then get publicly harassed for it, I'm going to take that as an example of what will happen to me if I speak up too, and that I should just keep my mouth shut. Not only is it an unproductive waste of time, something worse may happen to me. But as it turns out, I'm not alone in feeling that way. In fact, many moderates feel that way. According to a 2017 survey from the Pew Research Center, one in four Americans have experienced being harassed online. But even more shocking than that, the same survey reported that three out of four Americans have observed someone else being harassed online, and one-third of those observations were physical threats of harm and violence. Bale took this particular study and calculated that if you identify as a moderate, or slightly conservative, or slightly liberal, you are 40% more likely to report an experience of online harassment over those who identify as extremely liberal or conservative. Social media amplifies the voice of extremists and trolls, giving them an outsized appearance of influence in American society and politics it also empowering them to ruthlessly harass and attack the moderate majority and intimidate people into silence. 
But not only do moderates experience attacks from extremists and trolls, moderates also feel as though they're caught in a crossfire between two sides of a political spectrum who believe the other side is more extreme and far gone than they actually are. According to that same American National Election study I mentioned earlier, only 3% of the American populace identifies as extremely liberal and extremely conservative, a total of 6% of the population. And yet, according to a different survey, if you asked the average Republican what they thought of the Democratic Party, 55% of Republicans think that the average Democrat is extremely liberal, and 35% of Democrats think the average Republican is extremely conservative. How can this possibly be true? How can 6% of the population self-identify as being extremely liberal or conservative, but the average Republican or Democrat believe that everyone opposite them is extreme by default? The answer is due to a phenomenon known as false polarization. Think back to the ending of Bale's thesis statement for the book. Quote, the social media prism fuels status-seeking extremists, mutes moderates who think there is little to be gained from discussing politics on social media, and leaves most of us with profound misgivings about those on the other side, and even the scope of polarization itself. End quote. This latter clause is what Bale refers to as false polarization, the belief that other people are more extreme in their beliefs than they actually are, and that the current state of polarization is far more dire than it actually is. And this is something that impacts the entire political spectrum, because everyone on the political spectrum interacts with social media in some way, even if it's avoiding social media, due to beliefs formed by false polarization itself. The average Republican thinks the average Democrat is more extremely liberal than there are actual liberal extremists. The average Democrat thinks the average Republican is more extremely conservative than there are actual conservative extremists. And the moderates in the middle believe that both sides have lost their minds and that there are very few people like them who do not toe the party line completely for either party. And just so we're abundantly clear, the engine fueling this false polarization is social media itself, regardless of the platform that you use. As Bale says, There is even more evidence that people who use social media tend to develop more inaccurate perceptions of the beliefs and behaviors of those in the other party. Communications scholar Matthew Barnage polled a representative sample of Americans about their social media usage and political views in 2015. He found that people who use social media frequently perceive significantly more political disagreement in their daily lives than those who do not. In her study of political polarization on Facebook, the political scientist Jamie Settle observed a similar phenomenon. She showed people sample Facebook posts on a range of topics and discovered that the participants were far more likely to exaggerate the ideological extremity of people from the other political party than their own party. In a separate analysis, Settle examined how social network structure shapes false polarization. Interestingly, she found that the amount of perceived polarization grows as the social distance between people increases. If people have no direct connections on social media, such as being a friend of another person's friend, they tend to perceive each other as even more polarized than those who have direct connection. False polarization is an incredibly powerful motivator for moderates to avoid discussing politics on social media. And I should also add theology and a whole host of other subjects. I freely admit that there are people I know and love in my personal life that I have muted and blocked on social media because, like Sarah, I want to preserve my ability to spend time with them in real life. But also because I believe that they're likely too far gone down the rabbit hole for it to be worth my time trying to understand them. But there's another powerful motivation that makes it all the easier for me to avoid discussing politics online. 
I actually stand to lose something by getting wrapped up in political controversy online. Bale describes that moderates, unlike trolls, have real-world status and significance that they care deeply about. And also, unlike extremists, they usually have real-world identities that are far more meaningful and valuable than anything an online identity could ever get them. For me, I am a devout Christian who cares very deeply not only about my faith, but about my witness and reputation of my faith. I am married. My wife works for the state of Texas. I work for a church that I have been attending for nearly 10 years now and with people that I love very dearly. I'm currently a grad student working through seminary. I have wonderful and amazing family and friends. I live in a city in a community that I love and I call my home. This is all just a small sampling of my real-world life that gives me very deep meaning and significance and value and comprise many of the key details of my identity and how I see myself. And these are all things that I stand to damage if I get into too much trouble online. If I get into the political fray, I may put unnecessary stumbling blocks for the gospel or grieve or wound my neighbor for no good reason. My wife's job for the state explicitly requires her, and by extension to some degree, me, to avoid getting in trouble online. It may genuinely impact the reputation of my church, or the relationships I have with the people who attend my church and who I am called to love and serve. In my past life as a pest control technician, it could have cost us customers. It may put an unnecessary and completely avoidable wedge between the family and friends who give me so much life and joy. Given everything that is at stake for me, and given that I have watched and known people who have lost these things because of one Facebook post that got out of hand, or one tweet that wasn't sufficiently nuanced enough, why in the world would I throw my two cents in on gun control or immigration or COVID or anything else when I may not only get torn to shreds, but lose something that I love and hold very dearly? Trolls and political extremists often have very little real-world status or significance, which makes their online status and significance as a troll and among other trolls all the more valuable to them since it's the only meaningful form of status that they have in a vacuum of significance in their real-world lives. The opposite is true for moderates. Moderates often have deep and meaningful real-world identities and don't care about having an online identity or persona. And this is the perfect cocktail for moderates to withdraw to their real-world lives and for extremists to fill the gulf of social media and give the appearance that society and both political parties are more extreme than they actually are. As Bale summarizes, The social media prism makes the other side appear monolithic, unflinching, and unreasonable. While extremists captivate our attention, Moderates can seem all but invisible. Moderates disengage from politics on social media for several different reasons. Some do so after they are attacked by extremists. Others are so appalled by the breakdown in civility that they see little point to wading into the fray. Still others disengage because they worry that posting about politics might sacrifice the hard-fought status they've achieved in their offline lives. Challenging extremists can come back to haunt moderates, disrupting their livelihoods, friendships, or relationships with family members they will see every year at Thanksgiving. And Bale rightly believes this problem is going to get worse and not better. Unless we build active and counter-formational structures where we are able to form respectful and civil mutual understanding with people who are different from us, and people that we will disagree with. We can and should expect the social media prism to give us an increasingly distorted image of ourselves and for our behaviors to be bent according to those distorted identities. The extremists are going to get more extreme. The moderates will continue to become more and more invisible. Barring an unexpected development in the social media or technological landscape, we can and should expect the problem to get worse, and not better.
And like we have talked about this entire time, this is not an issue of information. What is driving this entire situation is our identity and how social media shapes our identities and the identities of others. While getting big tech involved in curtailing misinformation and disinformation is a legitimate piece of this puzzle, it is not the primary problem and it shouldn't be seen as the primary solution. We cannot think or fact check our way out of our hardwired desire to craft meaningful identities for ourselves based on what we love. But as this episode closes out, I want to leave us with an image that can maybe help us understand the core of what it is that's driving all of this. And that's an image that comes from an unlikely source. Many of us know the name C.S. Lewis from the Chronicles of Narnia, or to a lesser extent, Mere Christianity or the Screwtape Letters. But Lewis was a very prolific writer and speaker whose secondary catalog of work, his essays, his public speeches, his letters to his friends and his colleagues, is just as rich as his more popular works. One idea that shows up in a handful of places, including his space trilogy and some of his essays and speeches, is this idea of the inner ring. In my opinion, it's one of the most profound insights Lewis ever had. Andrew Cameron and Brian Rossner summarize Lewis's inner ring idea as... Our passion to belong to some inner circle of people who hover temptingly beyond our reach. When gripped by this passion, to be excluded from these circles drives us slightly mad, and to enter them leaves us smugly exultant. This very personal and subjective experience can drive dozens of our daily decisions. C.S. Lewis calls this the quest for the inner ring. In other words, all of us want to belong to the in-group, and we will do whatever it takes to avoid being excluded and kicked to the out-group. This raises the question, though, which in-group are we talking about here? Well, that all depends on what we love, and at our deepest core, who we desire to be and what we desire to be known for. Not everyone aspires to be in the same in-group or inner ring. For some of us, it's belonging to a particular social circle. A band, a club, a team, the group of guys who get invited to board game night, or the group of women who go on trips together. For some of us, it's belonging to a group of people who have attained a particular status or accomplishment. Being in a relationship, or married, having kids, finishing school with a particular degree, or getting a particular degree from a particular school, working in a job or particular industry, or being considered an authority or expert in a particular field. For some of us, it's belonging to the elite of a particular organization or movement. Being on the board of a company, a senior leader in a church or ministry, or on the personal invite list for a party hosted by a particular pundit or personality. All of us have a group of people in our lives that we tell ourselves that if we successfully became one of them, if we could legitimately use the term we when referring to that one particular group of people, that we would feel as though we've made it, or we've accomplished something truly important, or that our lives now finally have meaning. All of us know what it's like to be excluded from that particular group, even if we have now made it into that group. To be in orbit but slightly out of reach, to be briefly in one moment but out the next, to yearn and to fantasize about how much your life would be better if these particular people considered you one of them, and to grow despondent when reality sets in that they don't see you that way. I could go on, but I hope that right now you know exactly what those inner rings are for you, whether you're in that particular inner ring or not. And you know that whether you want to admit it or not, much of what you do is driven by a desire to belong to that one inner ring. Now to make some things clear, inner rings or inner circles are not bad simply because they exist. Nor is it bad that we want to belong to a tightly knit community of like-minded people. Every healthy relationship, whether it's in a marriage, a family, a community of belief, a hobby, whatever it may be, requires some degree of gatekeeping and exclusion in order for that relationship or community to be healthy. 
contrary to what I heard growing up in evangelical youth ministry culture, cliques are not bad in and of themselves. And what one person considers the good old boys club, another person considers a handful of trusted individuals and confidants. The problem, as Lewis identifies it, is not that these things exist in and of themselves. The problem is that, quote, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things, end quote. Our desire to belong to these inner rings, for these particular circles of influence to become part of our identity, will drive us to do or believe things that we would never otherwise do, and if we're not careful, we will be guided along by this desire to belong from one inner ring to the next for our whole lives without ever realizing it. As Lewis says, My main purpose is simply to convince you that this desire is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. It is one of the factors which go to make up the world as we know it. This whole pell-mell of struggle, competition, confusion, great disappointment, and advertisement. And if it is one of the permanent mainsprings, then you may be quite sure of this. Unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your life, from the first day on which you enter your profession until the day when you are too old to care. That will be the natural thing, the life that will come to you of its own accord. Any other kind of life, if you lead it, will be the result of conscious and continuous effort. If you do nothing about it, if you drift with the stream, you will in fact be an inner ringer. I don't say you'll be a successful one, that's as may be, but whether by pining and moping outside rings that you can never enter, or by passing triumphantly further and further in, one way or another, you will be that kind of man." I have already made it fairly clear that I think it better for you not to be that kind of man. What if all the fighting, the posturing, the signaling, and the positioning of social media isn't because social media is the marketplace of ideas, but because social media is one giant arena for people to compete for the various inner rings of culture and society? And what if trolls and the communities that they form is an example of an inner ring at work on a public scale. Recall the story of Ed earlier in this episode, the widower living in a motel in Nebraska. Remember how he bragged about having thousands of followers on Twitter and how some of those followers were big-name conservative leaders? What is the essence of Ed's boast here? I'd posit that Ed is describing that he has made it into the inner ring that he had been chasing, that he had attained the status of being one of them for a group of people who gives him the significance he is seeking. Of course, it turns out that Ed doesn't actually have thousands of followers and is followed by copycat accounts, but for Ed, that doesn't matter. It's his mistaken belief that he belongs that gives him an identity that matters to him. And what if this isn't true for just Ed, but also true for other trolls and extremists like him? I'm going to recall three quotes from earlier in the episode from Bale, and I'm going to link them together. The first one is this. Even if the fame extremists generate has little significance beyond small groups of other outcasts, the research my colleagues and I conducted suggests that social media gives extremists a sense of purpose, community, and most importantly, self-worth. The second one is this. Though it may seem that social media extremists are most concerned with taking down the other side through superior argumentation, ideally laced with wry humor or sarcasm, my research suggests that these attacks also serve a ritual function that pushes extremists closer together. And the third one is this. The further people become committed to radical views, the more difficult these commitments become to undo, and the more people come to rely on the status and support system that cults create. What if Bale is describing an inner ring at work? What if trolling 
is the fruit of what Lewis describes when he says, quote, passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things, end quote. And if Bale and Lewis are describing the same problem, what if the solution is similar? Lewis argues that the only way to avoid being driven by the passion to always belong to an inner ring is to recognize this passion and desire and actively choose to resist it and fight it. And that those who are most susceptible to being led away by this passion and destroyed by it are the ones who are not aware that they even have this passion at all. This is a quote from Breaking the Social Media Prism that I've been waiting until this moment to bring into the discussion, not only because it's a relatively simple quote, but because it's going to be something that we look at heavily in the next episode as we get to Bale's solutions. And that quote is simply this, quote, The social media prism exerts its most profound influence when people are not aware that it exists. End quote. I'm going to quote that again. The social media prism exerts its most profound influence when people are not aware that it exists. For Lewis, those who are unaware of their desire to belong to the inner ring will suffer the most from being swept away by this desire to do whatever it takes to belong to whatever inner ring we desire to belong to. For Bale, those who are unaware of the social media prism and how it distorts and bends our identities will suffer the most from having their identities be bent and their behaviors be distorted to conform to distorted identities. For Lewis, we must actively recognize this internal passion if we are to resist it. For Bale, we must actively recognize these effects if we are going to correct for them. If we are driven not by information, but by identity. If our identity is determined not primarily by what we think, but by what we love. If we love not the things that we think we love, but we love belonging and acceptance from others who have the identity we want to have, then the starting point for combating political extremism and online trolling is the same starting point for talking to someone who is being consumed by the desire to belong to an inner ring, who is compromising their beliefs and behaviors to fit in with their dream social circle, who is throwing away his family for the sake of a title or career milestone, who is making every choice around making sure those she looks up to smile in approval, who desperately wants to be considered a true believer or patriot by the patriots and true believers. And any other way, our quest for the inner ring meets the social media prism. The starting point for all of this is acknowledging that we do not love what we think we love. And that what we actually love may destroy us and be the death of us. And that we need to recognize these false loves so that we can reorient those loves to something else. And on the next episode of Breaking the Digital Spell, we will look at Bale's ideas for fixing the social media prism. And I'm going to look at how the gospel offers an even better solution. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking the Digital Spell. I hope that everyone had a wonderful time with friends and family over Christmas and the new year and that you're doing what you can to keep yourself safe from this new COVID variant. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a one-time tip over at our Buy Me a Coffee page or becoming a member to keep supporting the work of this podcast. You can find a link to our Buy Me a Coffee page in the show notes of this episode or just visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash digital spell. 
Breaking the Digital Spell is produced by me, Austin Gravely, with production assistance from Andrew Akins. Quotes are read by my wife, Melissa Gravely. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can listen to this episode and all our prior episodes on our YouTube page or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please consider leaving a review wherever you're listening to this if this podcast has been helpful to you so that others can discover it and listen to it as well. You can reach out to me directly with questions and comments through any of our social media platforms or through sending an email to breakingthedigitalspell at gmail.com. My name is Austin, and together we are Breaking the Digital Spell.